told you last week there's not a lot of references to Isaiah chapter 53 directly given in the New Testament. That's to me very surprising, but there is one I want to note before we get started here. In Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, it's a, it's part of what takes place in the upper room just before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's speaking to his disciples and he reminds them of the faithfulness of God to them in the past as they went out to speak and to preach the Word of God. In verse 36, he says to them, but now, he says, when you went out, you didn't have anything with you. But he says, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword, sell it, sell his coat and buy one. Then here's the important part for us. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And this is what has to be fulfilled in him. And that's what he's telling me is going to be fulfilled almost immediately, and he was numbered with transgressors. And he says this, For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Now that's important for us tonight as we come to this passage because that is from the very last line of Isaiah chapter 53. Um, the disciples would have been greatly encouraged that night if they had gone back, hunted up that reference, and read it. Of course, They wouldn't be able to carry copies of the Bible with them. That was way too expensive, but most of them probably had it virtually memorized by hearing it so many times. But he's saying something to us, and that's part of what we've been looking at all along here, is that this word, these are given so that you can know that what God's planned in the past is going to be fulfilled. And this is the Son of God. Now, before we begin to look at this passage. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you again tonight and give you thanks for your word, for the power of that word. We come to give you thanks for speaking so that we can know that Jesus is the Christ. And we can believe in him. So, Father, we're coming and asking you for that work by the Spirit of God to unveil to us the Lord in his glory. And bring us to that vital faith which is necessary in Him. So we trust you for it, and we would look to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Isaiah chapter 53. Remember that that section, this is just review how it's built, actually goes back to chapter 52. It is a, it's a song in a sense. We could think of it like a hymn, although it, it's a poem there, but it's, it's like a hymn in that it has stanzas. There are five stanzas, five collections of verses here. There are three verses in each one. The central feature of this, the central chapter of the messianic poem is the middle one which we finished with last week where it says, surely, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, and it was bru- he was bruised for our iniquity, crushed for our iniquities. The fact that the Lord bore the sin of the human race, that's the center of it. Last week we worked up to that. We came through the first three and worked to that. Um, this week we're going to start with that one and work to the end of the, end of the hymn. And again, you have outline here. I've, I've given you an outline from what we said last week. You remember what Paul says concerning the gospel? That the gospel, he simplifies this as he speaks to the Corinthians. And he says, here's what it is. 
Christ died for our sins, but we saw last week important, and particularly with this passage, He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It happened just the way God said it was going to happen. He was buried, and although He goes on to the resurrection, He was buried according to the Scriptures, as implied. Then He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. So when Jesus refers to that verse just before he walks into the fulfillment of it all, um, it's very important for those disciples. They would have the chance to see that what was happening was not out of control. It's so easy for us to lose track of what's going on if we start to look about what's happening all around us. God is in control. He has a plan. He has a program. Now, the Lord had tried to tell them that, but they didn't see it. In fact, the Scripture says they wouldn't see it. They they just wouldn't get it. But we want to start with that. And what I want to do, first of all, is just to read through this section. Remember, again, what we said last week with regards to, um, with regards to Erdman's on his, (laughs) Charles Erdman doesn't even make comments on it. He just said, you know what? It speaks for itself. Leave it where it is. He made a couple, but not many. No, no helpful ones. Nothing to fill out, you know. I, I can read it there, but there's something that you're looking for. But we're going to consider it in these three sections in the, in the gospel thing. The first part, he died for our sin. Now, death is through all three of them. The second one, he's buried. And the third one, he's raised from the dead. All right, now let's look at it. Let's listen to it as, as we look through here, beginning in verse 4. This is Isaiah chapter 53. Beginning in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, now he's speaking about the Jewish nation here as they looked on. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now I want to note as he's reading through here, he's reading it, he's writing it as if it's already happened. And I think that's, there's a little bit of danger here if we, if we forget that this is six well, almost 700 years before the events. But in his prophetic picture, he's, he's as if he's there, as if he's actually looking back on the events. So don't get confused there. Again, if you're not familiar with all of the way the script, this is a long time before the events that he is describing. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord, that is Jehovah, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter... Like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my, of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with, wick, with wicked men, and yet with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. 
He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord, that is of Jehovah, will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, that's the knowledge of who he is and and what he is, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Three parts. First of all, the concerning the death. Again, looking back through this. And again, it is sort of self-explanatory. And in a sense, we know it so well because we know the gospel's message. It's hard for us to be quite so impressed. Again, remember, it's 700 years before it actually took place. The very beginning, the central verses. Here it is in verse 4 and 5. This is what was taking place. This is what the Messianic poem is all about. The central feature of it is the cross. And the resurrection that, that occurs there. That is the message of the gospel because all we, that's where it finished there, all we like sheep have gone astray. We thought about that last week. And I want to say something about what I did say last week because uh, we could, you know, anyway, you could take it the wrong direction. Um, we have a lot of tools in our, in our bag to pull out to help us help people. Different ways we can approach them. Um, I remember many, many years ago, Mr. Carroll was asked, and I do not know who asked him. I just remember, I got a snapshot from many years ago, so it's way too far back. But somebody handed him a track, and I was there, and he says, what do you think of the track? Mr. Carroll just looked at it, didn't say anything about it, handed it back to him and said, does it catch fish? That's all he had to say. He says, can you use it to catch fish? Has it worked for you? If it has helped you catch fish, it's a good track. If it hasn't? He wasn't going to make assessment of the technicalities of the track. What he wanted to know was, could the person use it as a tool? If it worked for them, then good. If it doesn't, you don't use it. Last week I was talking about conviction of sin and that the point, and I want to make sure that everybody understands, I think there's a time when you have to alert people who don't think that they ever sin, that they do sin. And that there is sin in their life, and you point out to them, have you done this, have you done that? And that is a legitimate way to help some people get to an understanding that's what sin is. So I don't want to say that 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 is something to throw away. It's a good point. My question last week, and that's what I was making, and I got kind of carried away, I think I kind of narrowed it too far, is this. In my own experience... I haven't been able to get that to catch anybody. That just makes an argument, all right? Now, I'm not saying it never has, and it never can be used. It's just not a tool I pull out very often. Because to me, here is the, here is the convicting thing. If you want to catch, you want people to know that they're not right with God, or at least if there's a chance, here's where it comes. God has put this picture we have here. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the picture again is of the sheep sitting there with the, with the shepherd. And they're supposed to stay close to the shepherd. But they don't want to stay close to the shepherd. So they start to wander off. They go different directions. This is a tremendous passage. It's both convicting but also very encouraging. Some go down some awful paths. 
Other paths are, are more acceptable. They're socially acceptable. They don't seem to be wrong, but they're still taking you away from the shepherd. Does that make sense? So that that becomes sin. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one of us to what? Just what we wanted to do. Paul, again, says in the New Testament that we lived according to the lusts of our flesh and of our mind. And because of that, just because we lived by the pleasures. Now, those lusts are not the lusts of sinful lust. They're just whatever made my heart race to want. I want that. They could be legitimate things, but they aren't God. All we like sheep gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Now, we could have taken a whole lot of different courses. Here's the encouraging part in it. The Lord has laid on him all of the iniquity that that brought about. Doesn't matter where you went, all right? Doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what path you went down. The moment you're ready to turn around and go back to the shepherd, it's already taken care of. No matter where you are out there, whether it's the, what, what people would regard the worst of possible sins or they're not such bad, it doesn't matter. He caused the iniquity of us all, every one of us, because all of us are in the problem to fall on him. See, I, I find it, at least it, it makes the picture clear. You want to know whether you're in sin or not? Well, here's the thing. God, at very high price to himself, made it possible for you to know him. Do you want to know him? Now we're beginning to get clear where a person's heart really is. Do they want to know God or do they not want to know God? Now that's been helpful for me. I mean, again, you have to use the tools as you uh, as you're going to need them. But anyway, I don't want to make it. I don't want to make it sound like the other is. Use it. Use it. Use it to help people understand. But that's what, in the first section. That's where we were last week. He, he gets to the core of what's going on. People have a great need. What we all have a great need. And he's saying that on that his servant would come and he would bear those sins. But when it was happening, this is where the prophetic part comes. When it's happening, the people who are watching have no clue about what's going on. In fact, they're doing just exactly what he says here in the passage. But we considered him smitten of God and afflicted, which was accurate. He is that. That's why he says, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Now I want to move on to the next section. We've already covered that one pretty well, so I want to go on and, and see how this builds. Next goes to what we put down as the the uh, burial. Now there's more to it than the burial, but again, it, it's, when you're dealing with the prophets, they don't go directly to their target. They kind of go round and round to their targets. So you, it's hard to make an outline on these things. At least it's hard for me to make an outline because it never fits exactly right, but you've got to get some kind of an idea. But since the burial is in there and it's such an important part to the gospel message, uh, we want to look at this. It says he was oppressed and was afflicted. He was oppressed and afflicted. Now, the two words combine to say this, that he had, he had something that was done to him, but what was done to him was wrong. That's, that's the thought. He had, he was put through physical pain that's the afflicted but the what part of being about being oppressed was that that physical pain was not justly brought to him all right now this is helpful for us as we look at it because 
when we look at the story of the Gospels, I understand that he is, he's painting this so that we will know that the one who's out there is actually the Messiah. He tells us here that when he goes to trial, it's going to get down to it, when he goes there, the trial will be unjust. The reason he'll end up being punished is because of an unjust trial. That's the thought here. It's going to happen that way. And that would have been very helpful to those disciples that night if they had read that and understood it. But in the very passage that he quotes, that everything that is said about me has to be fulfilled. It has to be fulfilled. And this has to take place. But it says something else is going to take place. And this part is the part which, if we sit down and think about it, is absolutely amazing. Here is a leader of a movement. He is arrested and he is put through a mock trial. Right? He's put through that mock trial. And during that mock trial, he does not defend himself. And the, and the outcome, the, the consequences of being convicted are their capital offense. This is, this is death. Death is right out here. And yet he is not making any defense. That's what it says he does here. It is like, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Now again, I'll just put this in as a, look at how, the way it's woven together. I love the way the prophet does this. All we, like what? Sheep went astray. Now he says, now as a lamb before its shears. A lamb is being ready to be slaughtered. That's one of those great features that we saw last year in Hebrews. Lord didn't save us from out there. Because men needed salvation, he became a man. It was a sheep that went to the slaughter because it was sheep that had gone astray. And there he says that it's up there, okay. <clears throat> it says by oppression. He didn't open his mouth. Now again, you can go back and look at it. I challenge you just to, to go through there. There's only one comment that Jesus makes that even comes close to being a strong statement. Everything else he says there is just an acknowledgement that you're right. At one point he was hit and he said this. Listen, they accused him of, of speaking the wrong way to the, um, to the high priest. All he had done was said what was true. He just said, are you this? He said, yes. And they said, well, you can't talk to the priest that way. It's kind of a funny way. It's just what you asked me the question. But anyway, he doesn't do that, right? All he says is this. But if I've lied, demonstrated, if I said the truth, what are you hitting me for? It's not like he's, he's fighting there. That's very important because that's very hard to do. I don't know if it's hard for you, but that's all awfully hard for me. To be accused of something and then to be pressed and, and have false stuff said about you and not defend yourself? Now, again, there are a variety of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is so that we can know that the, that was the Lord because that is not easy for men, and it's particularly not easy for the leaders of movements. But there's another side to it that this passage wants to make just absolutely clear. Jesus is not in any way attempting to get out of that. He has stepped into it in the Father's plan. 
And that's very important because I want you to go to another one of the passages. Again, I thought we need to look at some of the passages where uh, these come up in the New Testament. If you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and thinking about the entirety of this section, listen to it. Again, Peter is not quoting so much, or he does have one quote from the chapter, but the whole chapter, his whole argument is about the chapter. Listen to it. This is chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. He's talking about what it is to stand and to accept unjust treatment. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's from that's a quote from this chapter. Right? There was no, no deceit in his mouth. And while being reviled... Now, that's not a quote. That's an an explanation which comes out of that passage. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He's entrusted himself to his father. That's what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. He faced the reality of what was ahead. He faced the reality of taking sin to himself. And he settled it with his father and he entrusted himself into his father's hands. And so he calmly goes through the, the work that God gave him to do, and he's not fighting them on it. He doesn't tell lie, but he just doesn't say much of anything. And then he goes on. He kept entrusting himself to him who, who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. It's not a quote. But it's the mood of Isaiah chapter 53. For you were continually straying like sheep. Right? It's Isaiah 53. All we like sheep gone astray. You were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's what we were saying last week concerning it. What does it mean to not, not go our own way? We return to God. We return to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. All right, back to chapter 53. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now, taken away there is taken away to judgment. All right, it's taken away to, we know it's crucifixion, but whatever the death would be. Isaiah wouldn't have known that at that time. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due? Now, again, I just want to point out that that literally comes to pass. Now, when he says, who, who considered, when it comes to his own generation, that means the people who are alive when he is, when this is actually happening. He says, who considered? And the word considered there is, is, it's more than just, huh, thinking about something for a moment. It's the idea of analyzing something and coming to a conclusion about it. Right? There are political analysts that supposedly look at what's going on in politics and can figure out where it's going, supposedly. There are, there are economic analysts who take time and they pour over numbers and they look at trends and they, they look at what's happening here and they study businesses and they go all the way and then try to predict where it's all going. 
But it's not done just by getting up in the morning and saying, ah, I think today's a good day to invest. It's all done with a lot of work. Now, in another sense, it's this. It's We're thinking about what it means to actually teach the Word of God. You take time and you, you look at the Word and you compare passages and you go here and here and here and you look and you wait and you, you try to figure it out and you... You try to see what's behind it all, and then you present what's there. That, that's the idea of considering. And the writer here asks, when it actually happened, who took the time to realize what was actually going on at the cross? And the fact is that no one did. No one. Now, eventually, the disciples would figure out what's going on because the Lord's going to explain it to them after He rises from the dead. But at that point, they don't know. The only one that's there is John. That's the only one we know actually showed up was John. But he's not thinking about that. The others are scattered because once the trial started, a group of them went, then Peter and John go to the trial. Peter denies him and he runs off. He's someplace, but he's not thinking about what's actually happening there. No one had the insight. The religious leaders didn't have the insight. The Romans didn't have the insight. Nobody knew what was happening that day. Who, it's what the writer says here, who considered, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land living, and that's a word of death right there, for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. Now he says something here which again, the idea of him being buried, we often overlook as kind of almost unimportant to the gospel story, but it's very important to the gospel story. All right, as if it's just a technicality, he died and then you buried him and then he, he rose from the dead. And the death and the, bur- and the resurrection are the two parts that we really focus on, but the burial is very important. And that's what he goes to next. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet with a rich man in his death. That is an interesting, interesting prediction. And I don't know how Isaiah came to that conclusion, you know, what he saw. But that's a very odd situation. Now, it says he was assigned. The thought was he was assigned to a grave. Now, you remember, he's been, he's been identified with transgressors. And in the day of the Lord, when he was, that is the day when the Lord was alive, people who were condemned in the, in the Hebrew nation were not buried with their families. They were buried as transgressors. And the Romans went along with that. So that they would be buried apart from the rest. It's part of the issue that he was numbered with the transgressors. And the transgressors isn't just people who have aren't walking with God. The idea of transgressor is somebody who has crossed the law. They're the people that end up in prison. They're the people that end up, again, in the Roman day, on the crosses. Those that were crucified, those that were had their heads cut off, those that were whipped, those that were down. Those are the transgressors. Not just everyday sinners, if you would. It says he's going to be assigned with them in his death. And that was true. He would have gone that direction. But he says, and yet with a rich man in his death, 700 years before it happened. He describes where he would have been, and then he tells you what actually is going to happen. A rich man, which we all know is the way it did take place. 
because contrary to the the situation in the day, Joseph decided that he was going to give him a rightful burial. Because you would just be kind of thrown into a grave if you were a transgressor because you were such a despicable person. But a man named Joseph, Arimathea, looks at it, has trusted him, and said, I'm going to give him honor. And Joseph happened to be a rich man. He was placed in a very elaborate grave, not just in a hole in the ground somewhere off to the side. Now, the, the importance of that, you say, why is that important? It's very important that we understand that Jesus actually died. I mean, you may not, you, for those of us that have heard the gospel all of our lives, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. But if you're outside of this, and there is an enemy which is trying to argue against the resurrection, one of the simplest ways to argue against a resurrection is to argue a person isn't dead. All right? Numerous stories are given of people who have revived. It wasn't too long ago that I read a story. I, mean, I, can't, I can't remember the details of a man who they thought was in the morgue. They put him over here and, whoo, guy started breathing again. <laughs> Nobody, I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that happened. I just know it did. But the point was he wasn't really dead. But Jesus was really dead. And the Bible wants to make that absolutely clear to you that it was not, he didn't just faint. He didn't, you wouldn't have gone through that. And he was, he was very dead. Acknowledged by the centurion, by that soldier, that he was dead. And then there was a period of time in which, after being through the lashing and the crucifixion and the spear in his side, he then was in, more or less embalmed, not embalmed, but at least wrapped in those, in those spices. The person that was wrapped in those spices, normally it was about 100 pounds of spices that were placed around a person in a wealthy person's burial. And during that time, he's very dead and he's put in a grave. And he is there for a considerable period of time. That's very important, the story, because there's a glory to the resurrection. And one of the ways that the enemy is always trying to steal that glory is to argue that it wasn't, he wasn't really dead. God has anticipated that. He anticipated 700 years before the event and said that he would die and he would be buried. He would be assigned to this place. All right, now we go on there. I want to say one other thing about that passage. Again, just put it in. There aren't a lot of references to the book of, or chapter 53 in the New Testament, but there's one real important one in the book of Acts. I kind of have trouble. I'll just try to get past this quickly, but there was a day when a man was riding in a chariot, reading the Word of God, and he couldn't understand it. And a man named Philip was sent to him to tell him try to explain things and he was sent to witness to him about the about the lord speak to him about it and when he gets to him he's reading the scriptures and he was right there and that's that that was what he was reading at the moment that philip comes in now there's there's something we pray for all the time for people that are ready the guy was ready. He's not even ready, but he's in the passage. He has the passage right in front of him. What a, what a gift 
from the Lord to Philip. And so it says that Philip did this. And beginning from that passage, he spoke to him concerning Jesus. From that passage. Well, that passage happens to have a lot of material in it. As he could describe so much of the events of the gospel right there. It's a tremendous experience there. Anyway, but I want to go on to the third part because there's the death. But then, and it's important to the passage that he's dead. Right? Because who is he? He's the servant, and he's dead. And then comes the last stanza. And the last stanza does not make any sense after the death. All right, listen to what it says. Right, okay, but, but, it, it, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, that word is just exactly what it says there. That, that it was, that God was, he found this to be the right thing to do. That what happened here was not the events of Romans. It wasn't the events of anything else. It didn't have anything to do with other than the fact that God himself had a desire that that servant would die. And that's, it, it, he has a positive desire that this should take place. That doesn't mean he hates the servant. It just means he had a, there was a, it, it, pleasure is the right word here. Sometimes it was, you can replace it with the will. It was his will. But that, that mutes it down a little bit from the, the thought that this is what God really wanted. He wanted this to happen. And that helps us because this goes right along with what the New Testament says when it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the Old Testament verse that parallels that. Sometimes we get the impression, sometimes that certain religious groups make this impression that, that somehow Jesus steps in the way of a God who didn't like us. And he, he puts him, he sort of throws himself on the tracks in front of it so that, that it'll be diverted. Now it's true that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God, which is against sin, but he's there because the Father decided he would be there. He's there because the eternal God is love. And because in His love, in His concern for the human race, He wanted them back. All we like sheep have gone astray, but He wants them back, but He can't get them back until justice is done. And because of what would take place, which is what the passage is about, because of what was out ahead, it was the pleasure of the Father to crush him. His death was the result of what the Father does. Right? Not the result of Roman crucifixion. If it weren't for his paying the price of sin, he has no liability to death. He had to, as we saw, give up his spirit. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. And I want you to remember that word because it comes up again in just a moment. To crush him, putting him to grief. Now, in the King, or in the uh, New American Standard, it says if he would render himself. It could say when he rendered himself. It's, it's a little bit obscure there. But it says when he did that. And we'll, we'll take it with the wording of the New American Standard. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. But then it moves on. And here's what it says will happen if he offers himself up as that guilt offering and dies, he will see his offspring. It's a death, burial, and resurrection. 
and that's what what's there are few passages, not a lot of times in the Old Testament, where it's so clear that the Messiah is dead so that he can rise again. But here it's absolutely clear. He was he was buried. He has died. He was cut off. There's all kinds of words of death in this passage. But now he says, after that, after he offers himself up as a sacrifice, he will see his offspring. Right? And what else does it say he'll see? Oops, excuse me, wrong passage here. Um, he will prolong his days. Right? And then here comes this. This is, this is tremendous, isn't it? And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What was the good pleasure of the Lord? To crush him. But he says that servant, that will of God to crush him will not destroy him, it will prosper him. Put in New Testament terms. You know those New Testament terms. Lest the corn of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it will abide by itself alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. That's the way it works. God so loved the world that he gave, but that giving was not the end. The death is not the end. And that's what the pastor is going to say, because he he died according to the Scriptures. He was buried according to the Scriptures. He was raised according to the Scriptures. If you want to know where that comes, well, here it is right here. He's going to be raised, because it says, as a result, it says it will prosper in his hand. Verse 11 as a result of the anguish of his soul, that's what took place as in, when he's an offering, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Just as he bore them, he's going to justify them. Remember that he, he, was, he died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He will justify many. All right, back to this passage. Therefore, this passage gets a little confusing to a lot of people, but it's it's really quite simple what's happening here. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. All right, now, how about this one? You say, well, who are these great people? I mean, Lord, who's, who could possibly... You've got to get this picture of him among a bunch of other great men that are at the end are, have conquered. you know who the great ones are in this passage? The ones that he will divide the booty with? The ones that will be the beneficiaries as he is exalted? You are part of that if you've come to Jesus Christ. I am part of that. We have an inheritance in him. That it was the desire. God didn't do this just so you could not go to hell. He did this because He wanted the human race as His own to know them personally. That is one of the great differences between the the religion, the, the, the way that we do things according to the Bible and everything else that's out there. The God that we proclaim is a person who wants to know persons. We were thinking about that last night in our own church service about, about the Muslim faith and, and one of the interesting features about it is the God who they, they worship can't be known. He's outside of the reach of personal relationship. 
You worship, but you don't know. God says this, that in this, Jesus Christ died the just for the unjust. This is another New Testament way it's described. To bring us to God, to take me by the hand and say, I'll take you in. I will take you to the Father. That's tremendous. And one day, right? One day, he will share everything that he has inherited with those that he redeemed. Now, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? I don't know. I haven't been there. I can't conceive of it. But that's the way it's described here. He's going to sh- he, he, he's going to going to divide with the strong. And why are they strong? Because they've come back to him. They were sheep who went astray, but they've returned to the shepherd and guardian of their souls. And they've become the strong ones. And the reason why he'll be able to do that is because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. It's a tremendous passage. It's a tremendous description of the love of God for the human race. It is a tremendous description of all the details of what the Lord would do. And why is it given? So that you can be certain You can be certain of who he is. Now, I want to also say this. The last part of this book, or the last part of this chapter, has not been fulfilled. It hasn't been fulfilled. (laughs) He hasn't hasn't gotten to that place yet. The church isn't prepared yet for that that experience of of being with him in that, that full way. Will it take place? Well, if 700 years before the events came to pass, if 700 years before his unjust trial it was predicted, if 700 years before his burial with a rich, in a rich man's tomb was predicted, if all of those things were predicted beforehand and they came to pass, just as was said, will not the rest of it be fulfilled? Is there any doubt that he will one day with us divide up an inheritance which is unspeakable? Again, this is is important important chapter. It speaks about the Lamb. It's the center of the Messianic section. That the one who would be king, a Messiah speaks about a king, is going to be a suffering servant on our behalf. Now, the question for us is this. What have we done with it? Again, I want to keep reminding you that all this is wonderful, but it's only wonderful if I turn back from my way and turn back to the shepherd and come back. The opportunity is there. Because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's wide open for every person in this room to come. And there is no place that you might have gone as a lost sheep which has put you outside of the reach. Because in an amazing way, of the way it works out is the moment you turn away, no matter how far you have wandered, the moment moment you turn around, you find He's right there. He's always right there. 
because he's been right there. He's, you've lived and moved and had your being in him all of your life, and he's pursuing. What have you done with it? Have you turned back and committed your life? Just put it in his hands to deliver. My guilt, your guilt was placed on him. Have you taken advantage of that? Let's pray. Father, we're coming and asking you to finish your work in each of us. Glorify your name. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, we thank you also for your unspeakable love towards us. That you were willing for that terrible event so that we could know you. Father, we pray that you will speak to each person in this room who's outside the kingdom, who's never returned. Bring them back for your praise and glory. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.